don't understand and can't make sense out of. Sometimes you feel like you've done everything you can do. You're being a good person. You're practicing all the things your parents taught you that you've read about in the Bible, and still something happens to you that you just can't make any sense out of. And when that happens to us, we have responses that come naturally to us. And our music this morning beautifully showed what two of those responses are. The choir's peace, the response when you just can't make sense of it and you're just in that place where it's hard to get up and even to move around, you look to God. You pray. You may sing your prayer, you may speak your prayer, but you look to God and you say, please, I want to be done with this place. I want to be done with this place of woe. Let me put my eyes on what's next. And that is a beautiful, prayerful, faithful response. Let me look put my eyes on what's next so I can get through this woe that I'm traveling through at this moment in time. It's a beautiful response, and it's not enough. If we just continue to sing that song and don't take action, don't speak up, don't move, don't march with all the other Rahabs and Tamars and Ruths and Marys like yesterday... It's not enough. We can sing that prayer and say it, and it can comfort us, and we know God is with us even in those times of woe, but then we have to take another step and move forward on our faith, trusting that God will be with us even when we go out the door again. And then the other piece sung by Amanda so beautifully, I was crying. I don't know if you were, but I was crying. Um, that if the response when those things happen of, getting strong, the response of putting on the armor, the response of saying, you're not going to hurt me again, the response of saying, you will have no power over me, I will claim my power and my voice, and you will have no power over me again. And it is a good response. I've seen people in that place singing that song, and I've been privileged to walk through them. Sadly, almost every woman I know, and certainly every woman in my family, Every woman, without exception, in my family. And I've been thankful when they were able to get that voice, get out of the house, and to sing that song, Warrior. And then I've been thankful when they knew it wasn't enough. Because they had to get to the place where they had healed enough that they could allow themselves to be more than a warrior. To love again. To be vulnerable again. So both songs are beautiful responses to these tragedies that happen in life, this horror, this violence that can happen even in our homes growing up. And how do we respond faithfully and keep responding our whole life? You know, the research shows that one in three women are sexually assaulted in their own home or by friends and neighbors before they ever get out of the house. One in three. One in six boys are assaulted in their own homes before they ever get out of the house. When they average that together, that works out to like one in five. So in this congregation this morning, if we have 300 people sitting in here, one in five people experience some kind of assault before they were able, ever able to leave home. And you know it's higher for marginalized communities. For those communities that are marginalized, like many of us here are, then it's one in two 150 out of 300 today 
have had this experience in their own lives. And we pray for them that they can sing the song Reaching to God. And we pray for them that they can sing the song that I'm a warrior. And we pray for them that they can sing both those songs and go forward to make a whole life and to be healed. And to know love again in their life. To know trust again in their life. Oh, these readings about Jesus' predecessors, his matriarchs and his family. All of them are tough. All of them. Not one of them is easy. Every single one of them is tough. And we know that Matthew did it for a reason. The grace, the reader said, that first Sunday we said, is grassroots up, coming from all sorts of folks in Jesus' bloodline. Now this creeps into even some of our most favorite pieces, these exceptions of violence, and trying not to name it for what it is. And I love the song by Leonard Cohen called Alleluia. Do you know that song, Hallelujah? There's two wonderful versions of it, and one has different lyrics that I love more because the one with this set of lyrics I'm about to share with you is pretty awful. But it's a way that we've allowed our culture to even seep into church and to seep in the songs that we're talking to God about. And in this verse, it starts off, if you'll put the slide up, Connie, uh, it starts off with... You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to a kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair. And from your lips she drew a hallelujah. This is a verse in one of the versions of hallelujah about King David. And I want you to see where the blame is put. You saw her bathing outside on the roof. And the moonlight overthrew you. The moonlight caused rape. Bathing in her own home on her own roof caused rape. And then see where the blame continues. She tied. She broke. She cut. Where is the blame? This is a hymn for us. How is the blame given to David in this? You know, in our world today still, we live in this culture where we absorb these images every day and we don't even analyze them. We can't even know to say object to people being made objects. But here it is in one of our favorite songs. And as we move forward in this time, I want us to even be more aware of how this kind of just permeates who we are. And we can't just let boys will be boys. We can't let locker room talk be a norm for us. We can't blame women for violence against women or boys. We've heard from this podium here many stories of people who've experienced this violence, both men and women, in their lives. We must name it and we must speak it. I like Angela shared this week when she grew up, they would teach the story of Bathsheba. And she thinks they said Bathsheba, but in her little head, what she heard them saying every time was Bad-sheba. We laugh, but don't you know that's what a little girl heard? Bad-sheba. Whose fault was it in this story? You know, I don't know when David sent the messengers, plural, messengers, were they dressed in their soldiers' uniforms? If they weren't in the soldiers' uniforms, were they in, like, official palace uniforms? Did she have a choice not to go 
to her husband's boss's command. You know, what do we call that these days? We call that abuse of power. We call that rape. But we're so used to it over and over again. We have a rape culture. We have a rape culture. And it makes us do some crazy things and put blame on the wrong people. We have two pictures from some of these protests that I want to share with you. Uh, If we put up the first one, here's a woman who loves who she is, who loves who she is, fixed herself up beautiful, you know, and it might be a hot day. She even fixed her up with a little bit of skin showing, a little bit of skin, right? And what does the sign say? Still not asking for it. You can be beautiful and claim your body and be whole as you are and wear as much or as little clothes as you want, and you're still not asking for it. But the fact that we need this sign says something about our culture, you know? So rape culture, the next slide kind of really does do the definition of it. We should be teaching don't rape, not don't get raped. We should be teaching don't rape, not don't get raped. Because who's the blame on when we do it the way we've been doing it? You know, that skirt, that dress, that look. Oh, my God, the moonlight. It's horrible, right? We got to laugh at it because it's so bad. It is just so bad what we allow to just be a part of our consciousness so much without even asking for it. And here it is in our scriptures. Here it is in our story, the story of Jesus' family. Here it is for us to look at. And I want to tell you that these stories uh, about Solomon, we have to be a little bit careful. I said Solomon because these stories were written during Solomon's court. So David was king, and then Solomon became king. And this was the most prestigious time in the country of Israel was during this time. And so during Solomon's time is when all the stories that were told started to get written down. Okay? That's when they start. So when you write something down, that gives you the power to tell the story, right? And if you're now the king, you get to tell the story in the way you want the story to be told. So when you read First and Second Kings and you read the stories about Bathsheba and David and Solomon, you have to remember also that these stories are meant to support the monarchy. They're meant to support King Solomon's rule. So you have to be really careful about what they're saying and sometimes question how good Solomon is in some of these stories. You know, and how things went so smoothly because Solomon's court are the ones telling the stories. You know, so as we look at that, it's sort of like having backseat driver vision, you know, the one that keeps poking at you. Turn now, turn now, you know, do it this way, leave that out, you know, because that's how these stories of First Kings are written. It's important for us to know that the winners have that power. They get to define sometimes history. And here in Texas, we know it very, in a very real way. You know, the Texas Board on Education, they make these choices on which textbooks are going to be taught in our schools. Serious choices. And why it's so important is that we, Texas, are the biggest purchasers of textbooks in the U.S. So when we choose a textbook and buy that many, almost every other state has to use the same textbook or the cost would be hugely different for them. And so it's important when you read articles in the newspaper and the textbooks don't have the Holocaust in them. 
It's important when you read in the newspaper that they're ignoring a textbook or wanting to get rid of a textbook because it doesn't talk about slavery. Serious. And our Board of Education has approved some of these books to be taught in our classrooms. Our state, what does it mean to be able to tell the story more fairly, more for everyone? What does it mean? Maybe one of you needs to run for a school board. I'll vote for you locally or by state because the power is unreal. Some of our kids don't know what's going on. It's because it was never in their classroom because of the textbooks that were chosen. So Solomon's Court is writing history, and you want to be careful of what's in and what's out of First and Second Kings. And the way they tell the story is they tell the story that um, Bathsheba and Nathan took action. They took action because David had many sons, but he wasn't a very good father. The first three of his sons are already dead. They're dead from one reason or another, usually violently. Okay, so there's two sons next, the fourth and the fifth. The fourth son is named Adonijah. The, the fifth son is named Solomon. So as David nears death, Solomon's not in the proper order. Adonijah's in the proper order of who should become king. And so as David approaches death, he has Abishag, a young woman, to warm his bed. You'll like that lovely story? Abishag is the bed warmer. Is in his bed, and David's not doing too well, and Adonijah goes out and brings some generals and some other people with him and has a great feast celebrating the fact that he is king. And Bathsheba knows this is bad for her family. So Bathsheba and the prophet, Nathan, Nathan is the one who called David into account early on about his adultery. Bathsheba and the prophet, Nathan, go in to David, Bathsheba first and then Nathan, and they say, did you know you're not the king anymore? Did you know Adonijah has already made himself the king? And did you remember, this isn't anywhere else in scripture, did you remember that you promised Solomon would be your king? So remember who's writing the story. <laughs> you promised Solomon would be your king, and so David, in that moment in time, goes and takes Nathan, and they anoint Solomon king. They anoint Solomon king. As I tell you the story, I want you to know, this is the most peaceful transition of power in Israel's life. <laughs> it is, because the, the passing of power before this was war between Saul's family and David's family, and David hooks up with both Michael and Jonathan, and then kills most of Saul's family. For David to be king. And then after Solomon, the country divides into half. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So this story is the most peaceful transition of power of, the, of Israel in our scripture. And so what happens is uh, Solomon takes power. Adonijah steps back, but he makes a mistake. He says, I'd like to have Abishag to be my wife. And Solomon says, sees that as a threat to power. David's concubine to become Adonijah's wife. And so Solomon kills his brother, the fourth, so there will be no more contest. So only one recorded death. This is the smoothest transition of power in the Hebrew scripture for us, you know? And so I just want to pay attention to that. And who has the power at this time is Bathsheba. Bathsheba has the ear of the prophet. Bathsheba and the prophet go and talk to David. And then in 2 Kings... 
Adonijah is afraid to approach Solomon, so he says he approaches Bathsheba. Bathsheba had the court power. Bathsheba could bring his case before Solomon. And Bathsheba does bring his case towards Solomon with the result that he's killed, but that wasn't her expectation that we know of. But so Bathsheba goes from the woman who may have been given off in marriage to Uriah the Hittite without any choice, and then was taken by a king, and then in her life learned how to play the games of power, and learned how to make sure her family was left out, and learned how to make sure that Solomon would then reign with the power of the priest Nathan in her own voice, in her own story. Is this uplifting material? <laughs> I think whenever we address this underbelly of humanity in our leaders and who we are as a people, it's important for us to just at least be able to name it and be able to then deal with it once we've named it. Because this continues to affect us today. This affects us now. This affects us, it affects me when I hear that song and I start to tear up because I'm imagining the faces of the people I love. I'm imagining the faces of the people I love. That that song is their story. My sister Terry, when she was 40 years old, started taking karate. That's a good thing to be a warrior, right? Take karate. You know, she decided, and she is smaller than me, shorter and less weight as well. So there she is learning her karate belts. And she's talking about it. And then as she goes from one belt to another, I don't know if it was up to brown, um, all of a sudden in her life, this image came up for her as she was hitting the practice dummies. This image was the face of our abusive stepfather that we had for one year when she was seven to eight and I was nine to ten. In that year of her life, a fear. This is the face that was on the dummy that she was kicking. 33 years later, we need to name the names and the stories of people because the healing is continuing, and it must continue. We need to help them become warriors, they and us. We need to also then help them leave whatever place of safety that keeps them walled off back into the world, the world of life and the world of hope. You have a Terry in your life. I have more than one. I'm sure you as well. What they did in research when they talked about childhood sexual abuse is they discovered that the more rigid the faith, the more likely there was abuse. The more gender rigidity in the faith, the more likely there was of abuse. And where did the blame and shame go? Often on a child who could not object. We cannot allow ourselves or those we love to be objects. We've got to stand up and speak. We've got to march with all the Rahabs and Tamars and Marys and Bathshebas that we can. And we've got to lift our voice. The Texas legislature this year is introducing horrible legislation around LGBT persons and women's, women's rights in our state. And they're being heard. We need to object. As a people of faith, we need to object. I want to lift up this quote from the book, Underdogs and Outsiders, by Tom First for you. In Bathsheba's story, we find the truth so prevalent throughout Scripture 
that the kings and the rulers of this world do not get to rewrite the moral code of the universe. The moral code of the universe. However, we do not unravel the structures of oppression through ignoring these problems or by denying they exist. Are you done denying they exist? One and two in these pews. A part of everyone's life in this sanctuary. Are we ready to stop denying that it exists? I object. I object. I'm so thankful that Jesus is there to show us the way. Amen.